We're going to draw our text today from the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is uh, probably, in my opinion, uh, as far as Bible stories go, this chapter is probably the most famous Bible story in the whole world. Uh, anybody that's ever had anything to do with Christianity or even, I've even heard it through the years like if there's a, an underdog sports team or whatever, they'll say it's the battle of David and Goliath. You know, it's like, it's, it's the story of the underdog. And uh, it's a powerful chapter and I love, love, love to preach about the victory of the slain giant and all that. That's, it's so good. It's one of my favorite stories to preach. Um, but I want to preach to you just a little bit today, maybe from a different angle than, uh, than we usually would. I want us to begin today uh, at the beginning of this chapter, and I'm just going to kind of work my way through a couple of things uh, throughout this chapter. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 1, and if you're there, just say amen. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah. And they pitched between Shoko and uh, Azekah and Aphez de Mim and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah. And they set the battle in array against the Philistines. Now, this is what it is. I think most everybody in here is familiar with the story that this giant is saying, send me a man. I'm going to fight. I'm, you know, let's do this. How did this happen? It happened when the children of Israel set the battle in array against the Philistines. In other words, everything was in order to look like they were ready to fight. The battle was set in array. You understand what I'm saying? All the, all the soldiers were there. They had the armor. They start building some kind of for, fortress to be behind, whatever, however you want to view this. The battle was set in array. It was ready to go. Yet whenever the voice of the giant came, saying, send me a man, an army that was satisfied with looking like they had it together, cowered down as the voice of intimidation began to scream across the valley, send a man. This was an army that looked like they were ready to fight. But when it came time for battle, not a man would unsheath his sword. I want to talk to you today, if I could, from a simple subject, how giants are slain. How giants are slain. You may be seated in Jesus' name. Now, they set the battle in array. The scripture said that the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. Now, I can't get stuck at every verse today as I uh, break down the scripture and preach to you. But I, I do want to mention something to you. That sometimes the greatest victories that are going to come in your life are going to come when you understand the value of a valley. You're never going to win standing on the mountaintop staring down your enemy. You've got to learn the value. The Bible said that there was a valley that was between them. 
The victory did not come in the mountain. The victory came in the valley. If you believe that, say amen. And the Bible said that there went out a champion of the Philistine. He was named Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. That's about nine feet, a little greater than nine feet tall. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. He had greaves upon his legs and the target of brass between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. It's hard to get an exact uh, measurement of all of these things that they're talking about. But I find it very interesting to consider that the head of his spear, the, just the head of his spear, the weight of the head of that spear was 600 shekels of iron. Now, an exact amount I can't give you for sure on exactly how they were weighing this out, but I could tell you it would be somewhere close to the equivalence of picking up a 35 to 40 pound dumbbell and putting it on the end of a, of a, a shaft of some kind that was as big as a weaver's beam. This weaver's beam uh, they used in the loom as they would take uh, the wool from a lamb and they would begin to make uh, uh, rugs or clothing or whatever. The weaver's beam was the big large post that they had that kind of held that whole system together in, in, in basic layman's terms. It was a very large piece. So you can imagine this had to be some kind of a man that just the spear that he could throw some distance or that he would use to thrust through the heart of an enemy. This is not his sword. This is his spear. This is something that they would use in distance warfare. They weren't close enough for the sword, so they would throw the spear. Anybody in here think you could probably throw a 40 or 50 pound dumbbell from here to the back door of the sanctuary? Anybody? Anybody? In, it's a pretty big guy. He's in on that. And, you know, this is, it's a big deal. But I want to tell you something that's always intrigued me about this chapter is that this giant of a man and everything that he has is completely measured out and weighed out, but not one single person has gone to meet him face to face. In other words, everything they know about their enemy, they have measured from the other side of the valley. They have stood in intimidation and measured what they thought they would have to fight. And the measurement was so great that they were intimidated to cross the valley and to fight him. I want to tell you that in this day and time that we live in, if you're looking for chaos, you don't have to look very far. If you're looking for things that will bring fear and intimidation in your heart, you don't have to look very far. As a matter of fact, you have to look away. It's there. It's present. It's prevalent. Everywhere you look, there are spirits of intimidation and things that are tied to intimidation that are trying to get us as children of God to become reclusive and to pull ourselves away and to start making statements like this when we measure it up. Is it really even worth the risk? Is it really even worth the fight? And the enemy will, he will literally hold us captive and we will become absolutely paralyzed by the fear of what we have measured from a distance. I know that fear can be debilitating. And when you look at the battle that you're going to have to face and 
the miles that you're going to have to walk. It's easy to stand in one place and say, I really don't know how in the world I could ever win this battle. And you look at your friends because misery loves company. And you say to them, can you believe how big that giant is? Oh, I know. I Man, you're crazy. I can't believe anybody would ever fight that. You can always find people who will join you in unbelief. There was not one man in the battle that was set array that was willing to fight. Not one, not even the king. But apparently somebody was willing to measure. It's always easy to find folks that will tell you how much it's going to cost. Well, I'm already preaching good right there now. It's easy to find people that will tell you how expensive revival is going to be. But it's a lot more difficult to find people that will join hands with you. And say, come on, we're going to go to prayer until this thing breaks. It's not hard to find people that can tell you how difficult it is to live for God. But it's amazing when you find people that will say what a joy it is. To be filled with the joy of the Holy Ghost. What a pleasure it is to be a child of God. You can always find people that will stand to the side and tell you i can't believe you'd go to a church like that i can't believe you'd buy into people thinking you got to do all that to go to heaven hey i don't do everything i do so i can go to heaven i do it because it's a joy to serve the lord don't get me wrong i don't want to be lost i don't want to die and go to hell but, but not everything that I do is just to keep me from going to hell. There is value in understanding being close to the master. And some of the things that I do, they pull me further away from the world and bring me closer to God. If it's drawing me further from God and closer to the world, you can guarantee it is not the will of God. And so the Bible said to this man... He is standing and for 40 days they have measured the risk. They've measured what it's going to cost. And he would say things to find the armies of God's people. He would say things like, send me a man and if he can destroy me, then we're going to be their servants. But if I destroy him and I kill him, then you are going to be our servants. You know, there's just enough truth in that. Just enough truth in that to be dangerous. There's just enough truth in that to be dangerous. But when the voice of intimidation is so powerful, it's easy for us to get scared to death and to withdraw ourselves from the battle. Now, this is just probably rhetorical to some people. But I'm going to slow down slow enough that I can say this and you understand that this is not just about hype, okay? But I want you to notice something that the scripture talks about Israel as the armies of the Lord. These are God's people. You believe that? You believe these are God's people? Do you believe this is the people God had his hand on? And so when the, when the enemy stands up to defy the armies of God's people, the armies of the Lord... You have to understand that he's not just messing with God's people, but when you mess with God's people, you're messing with God. And so intimidation wants you to believe, oh, Lord, look, 
He's defiant. What are we going to do with defiance? Listen, not every day that you serve God are you going to go without being defied. You never have victory if you've never been defied. At some point, you got to go through some stuff and win some stuff and stand through some stuff. If you believe it, shout amen. You cannot have victory if you have not been defied. But you got to get this in your spirit. Before the first stone was ever thrown or the first uh, sword was ever wielded against Goliath, somebody had to believe that the God who was for them was greater than the giant that was against them. Now, people can say whatever they want to say about this story, but I'm going to tell you why I know this is true. It's because the rest of the story alludes to this fact. The reason that they fought was not because they felt like they were insufficient. The children of Israel did not believe in themselves the way that God believed in them. David did not fight Goliath with his own power. If we fast forward to the end of the story, we've all read it. He said, you come to me with a shield and a sword. You come to me with physical attributes. You come to me with your weaponry, but I come to you. Somebody help me say it this morning. In the name of the Lord, when we start believing in us the way God believes in us, and we start understanding the power that's not in us, I wish somebody would realize today it is not by might and it's not by power but it's by the spirit of the lord it's not because i'm great it's because he's great it's not because i'm strong it's because his strength is made perfect in my weakness okay so so stay with me right here now this is going to be heavy for just a minute okay they're all dressed up to go to battle. But nobody wants to fight. They like calling themselves the children of God. But they don't believe God is for them. What is this, Pastor? It's a beautiful picture of modern day Christianity. When we live in a time where demons are embraced instead of cast out. That witchcraft is embraced instead of rebuked. But we love to call ourselves the children of God. Can I tell you right now, we don't, we don't really believe that we're children of God. We believe that we are children of the God that modern Christianity has drawn him to be. The God that modern Christianity says he is, is not really the God that he is. Because he said, I am God and my glory will I not share with another God. Is not in the business of blessing things that want to take his glory. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on this Sunday morning. I think, I think somebody's either weary or you woke up cold today. But I've come to preach to you on this Sunday morning that nothing that disagrees with God will ever get the glory of God. And nothing that stands against God will ever be one with God. Is, is, is there a biblical precedent for that? Oh, yes, there is. J- Jesus starts casting out devils. And they said, look, this man is the devil. He said, yeah. Is that funny? Well, I cast out the devil in the name of the devil. 
You understand what I'm saying? But when deliverance, oh Lord Jesus, when deliverance has been measured out and deliverance is too expensive and deliverance is too big and deliverance is too tough and deliverance is too strong, then we start preaching a doctrine that says God doesn't care if you're delivered as long as you're happy. We'll change our doctrine to the form of this word. But I feel a little apostolic anointing on me this morning as the apostle said. He said, be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Hey, I'm telling you today, it doesn't matter what your addiction is. It doesn't matter what you've come from you have measured your deliverance but I want to remind you that God is greater than what you've measured if I had time today to stay here I'd get into Job a little bit I'd like to talk to you if I had the time to get into Job a little bit you know we can always measure the enemy but Job started talking in his queries back and forth to God and then God starts asking him some questions and he said who can measure me he said when with the palm of my hand I have scraped out the oceans who can measure me with just a pinky finger that I have established he said Job where were you when I popped the chalk line on the earth and I created everything that you see and you don't see here's the problem We're standing around measuring things that we think we know the measure to. All the time the God that's standing in our corner and fighting for us, he cannot be measured. He is immeasurable. His mercy is immeasurable this morning. We've measured our deliverance and said, yeah, I think that's going to take at least 12 steps in a program. You know, I want to tell you, I've known some wonderful, wonderful people who have been blessed by 12-step programs, 10-step programs, and I applaud them for anything they've got. I mean that. I don't care if they got 35 coins, for you know, one for every year. That's all right. But I'm going to tell you, where I'm going in this sermon this morning, I want you to understand, it's not the power of the coin, and it's not the power of what you've been taught. It's not how many steps you've been through. It's the power of a made-up mind. It is the power of a made-up mind. And as long as you sit around measuring how much deliverance is going to cost, and as long as you sit around measuring the giants that are in your life, you are disregarding the voice that's behind you saying, I'm for you. You can do this. I created you in my image. I formed you after my likeness. You are more than a conqueror. Come on, there's a voice that's in your corner today that's saying you can do this. You can overcome this. But we've got to Stop measuring. We measure the tangible. And we measure it by how long we've been bound. They said that old giant was out there for 40 days. We measure it by how long we've been addicted. Do you really think, Pastor, that God could set me free from 35 years of addiction? In one altar call? 
Well, if he's ever done it for you, now would be a good time to say amen. Come on, I'm talking about you used to get up every morning and couldn't go through the morning without a bottle. You couldn't make it through the day without a pill. You couldn't make it through the day without another shot. You, Oh, God. You couldn't make it through the day without smoking another. You were bound by that. But in one moment in the presence of God, you stopped measuring the deliverance. And you turned to God that's immeasurable loose and said, Lord, I believe I can. And I believe you did. Oh, I wish somebody would have church with me right there. Let's worship the Lord together. I know some folks think it's just hype, but I remember what some of you look like when God set you free and you didn't give God a pretty little golf clap. You didn't just sit back with a pretty Pentecostal smile, but when God set you free and he picked you up out of the miry clay and he set your feet on a solid rock, you started giving God praise. I wonder what would happen this morning if we would just remember the goodness of God. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. If you were trying to convince somebody in here this morning that's been measuring their deliverance as to whether or not God still can, I wonder if our worship of what he's brought us through would be enough to tell somebody, not only did he do it for me, but he can do it for you. And if he... I got a reason to be excited this morning. So now, we've had 40 days, and there's, there's some power in what's transpired. I really don't know if we truly, if we truly understand what, what, what's truly going on here, but when you read through this, I've preached this and taught this through the years, but do you know the things that you measure become the greatest distraction in your life? I've said this several times. But I honestly believe that the enemy's number one tool against the church right now is distraction. In the Matthew 24 narrative, I've told you a thousand times that the only thing that's repeated in in the eschatology uh, narrative as we like to teach it, the only thing that's repeated more than once is three times, and that's deception. And the reason why the enemy wants to distract us so bad is because if we're not distracted, then we can't be deceived. Somebody say amen or oh me. Do you know anybody that's ever backslid when they were just absolutely focused? You ever seen somebody fall away from God that's praying an hour a day, fasting every week, in church every time the doors are open, don't ever. You ever seen anybody backslide that's up on their feet worshiping, loving God? No, 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 wait, wait, let me pause right there. I'm not talking about people that tell you they pray an hour a day. I'm not talking about people that worship so you see it. That's not worship. I'm talking about people that are so focused on God that you don't ever have to wonder where their treasure is because you see their heart. 
I've never seen somebody backslide and walk away from God while they're focused. But they always get just a little distracted. Now that can happen on a thousand levels. This could be my whole sermon this morning on how, how distraction happens. I mean, how does it happen? Does it happen through a person? Does it happen through a job? Does it, you know, y'all can preach this part. You know what distracts you. But the problem is that I, can I preach about me? Is that I don't ever learn to stop the distraction before I get distracted. I know that's good preaching because I'm preaching about me. It's like we never realize we're distracted until we're like. And then you wake up one morning and you realize I've gone further than I ever planned on going. I, I didn't I didn't mean to miss that much church. I really didn't. I, I, I didn't mean to be that far from God. I, I didn't mean to be that cold. And you start realizing it. It's going to get pretty stiff in here for a minute. But you start realizing it when God sends men to preach convicting words. And you notice that everybody around you is weeping and crying and convicted under the power of the Holy Ghost. But you don't feel conviction like you used to. And you realize in that moment apparently either they're oversensitive or I've lost something. But there comes a time in your life where, believe it or not, if you don't wake up right then, you're going to learn how to live in that state of mind and convince yourself every day that everything is all right. I really want to know. I'm not sure there's a blanket answer, but I really want to know how long does it take to get used to being in the presence of God and not feeling the presence of God anymore. I wonder how long does it take before you have to hear so many sermons and they used to affect you, but they don't move you anymore you used to be moved to repentance but now we're just moved to justification I'm justified because God wants me to be happy but I want you to notice this voice of distraction who David never called a giant he called him an uncircumcised Philistine but I want you to notice the value of this it's in your Bible go look at it I'm in a hurry the scripture said that at that morning and evening for 40 days everybody say that with me morning and evening for 40 days that the giant came morning and evening morning and evening I was in that chapter one day reading that morning and evening he came out and it rang a bell in me I said morning and evening that sounds familiar to me and I went back to Leviticus and the Lord established with the priesthood he said the time of sacrifice for my people is going to be morning and evening somebody say morning and evening morning and evening now don't you can you can feel however you want to feel about this but I'm going to tell you I don't believe it was an accident that their greatest distraction in their lives came at the moment that God had preset for them to be with him and sacrifice and in prayer I, I don't believe I don't believe for one second that it was just because Goliath was so smart that he knew but I believe that the spirit of the age knew how to manipulate that voice and say if you'll distract them in the morning and you'll distract them in the evening then there will never be sacrifice that comes from that people they will be paralyzed on a mountain while the, while the sacrifice roams in the wilderness help, let me help you understand something that prayer in your life can never be a negotiable it is not something that we just add to what we do let me help you understand something this morning that your iPhone or your Android or your iPad is not your friend in a prayer meeting. 
I'll hear from people I hadn't heard from in six months when I'm praying. We laugh about it, but it's true. You start a fast, somebody will bake you a pie. I've had people invite me for dinner. They ain't never invited me for dinner when I start a seven-day fast. It's the truth. You go into prayer meeting and you'll think of every single person you forgot to text back. I was preaching a youth rally thing the other day, and I and, and I was kind of talking about this right here, and, and they, I said, well, well, you know, Brother St. Clair, I use my phone for my Bible during prayer. Then here's a neat idea. Go get your Bible. Because <laughs> I can't text nobody else on my Bible. And I've only got one person texting me in the Bible. Either say amen or owe me. Well, I'm a little distracted. Okay, good, 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 good. Pick up your Bible while you're in prayer and start praying the word. I don't know what else to say. There's at least an hour's worth of Psalms in the first four Psalms. If you don't believe it, try to read four Psalms when you go to bed at night. Get to the 13th verse and you're like, Somebody say morning and evening. The greatest distraction came during a season of sacrifice. I'm hurrying. The scripture said that while all of these men, I'd really like to shoot real straight today, but I don't want to offend anybody. You know, you got to be real careful how you say stuff anymore. But listen, while all these pansies were sitting up in the mountain, Warming their hands by the, by the daggum campfire. And Saul's over making plans about all the big things he's going to do. There's a voice every day saying, send me a man. And the problem is not that the challenge wasn't good. Send me a man. That sounds good. The problem was there wasn't a man over there. Send me a man, send me a man. Well, there wasn't one. It was a bunch of weak, anemic, jellyback people who like to be called children of God but don't believe they are. Well, I wish I could preach that to the choir. That's so good. We got to get beyond, we got to get beyond this. Sing about victory, preach about victory, never have victory. Victory is always easier to talk about than it is to get. So here it comes. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Lord, let them be ready. Because the seed's always good. So the Bible said that here comes David. David comes bringing cheese and crackers and bologna because he's my kind of man. He shows up with some good... Good bread, crackers, shows up with some good cheese. And his brothers, pansies, all they can do when he shows up to be a blessing to them is say, what do you think you're doing here? Now, before we go getting bent out of shape, I'm going to tell you why they were mad at him. If you go back one chapter into chapter 16, 
This is where David gets anointed to be the king. They weren't mad that he was there. They were mad that he was chosen. God, I want you to choose me. God, I want you to use me. God, I want you to do great things in my life. Okay, here's what you got to know. If you get chosen, then you're going to get frozen. And there's going to be people that are haters of you because the hand of God is on your life. But I want you to notice the spirit of David when he showed up. He didn't show up and say, what do you mean? What do I think I'm doing here? I'm the one that's anointed, not you. You don't ever have to convince people you're anointed when you've been anointed. So the Bible said that he shows up just doing the will of his father. And he comes with the crackers and he's just trying to be a blessing. You know, Jesse's worried about his boys because he thinks them brave boys he raised are down there raising Cain against the Philistines. You know, way well, hey, go down there and check on my boys. I know, they left here dressed for battle. I know they're ready. <laughs> Surprise! Have you ever wondered why they weren't anointed? Maybe the next chapter reveals why they couldn't be anointed. And so he shows up. And here they start. What do you think you're doing? Eliab looks at him. What's wrong with you, punk? What do you think you're going to come down here and say something? What do you think you're doing down here? He said, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing what Father asked me to do. I came to be a blessing. Church, can I lift a little pressure off your shoulders? I've slowed down here for a reason this morning. Listen. Not everybody knows how to receive a blessing from you. I I really want to help somebody understand this today. He showed up to be a blessing to them, and they didn't know how to receive the blessing. But let me tell you what he didn't show up to do. He did not show up to defeat a giant. He did not show up to go into warfare. He showed up to be obedient to what his father had asked him to do. Nothing more. And we love this story. I do too. I told you at the beginning, one of my favorite stories to preach. I love all of it. I love the five smooth stones. I love him running. I love him knocking the giant down. I love all of that. I absolutely love it. But I saw something the other day that I've never noticed before in my life. David didn't show up to defeat the giant. God was looking for a man that he could trust his spirit while brothers were being critical to him. He said, I want to know if I can trust the man as a man before I can trust him as a giant slayer. Let me break it down for you like this and tell you, you will never get dominion over giants if you don't have dominion over you. Before David ever slew a giant, he had to learn how to control himself with jealous brothers. He had to learn how to control himself with authority that was out of alignment with Saul. Saying, God can't use you. God can't do anything with you. You're too young. And David had to choose in that moment to have dominion over himself. Church, let me tell you, when giants are going to start falling, they're going to fall when we get dominion over our flesh. Giants are not slain when stones are picked up. Giants are slain when you show up to a battlefield you didn't want to be in, but your daddy said, son, go. 
and check on your brothers. And the first thing that happens when you show up in the will of God is critical people and angry people. But you learn how to keep your spirit right. And when your brother looks at you and hates you, you say, here, let me bless you. You you ain't hear what I'm preaching to you. In the face of Eliab, when he said, who do you think you are? He said, here, receive the gift of your father. We've got to learn how to bless people that hate us. We've got to learn how to do good to them that, oh God, I'm preaching in here right now. Jesus taught it in the red letters. It's a hard part to live. But until we get control over us, we will never get control over the giants that have come against us. So how? How are giants slain? I'm finishing right now. I'm closing. How, how, how are giants slain? Giants are slain when my flesh has been crucified. Oh, man, I've preached so many things through the years in this chapter. I love if music would come. It would be great this morning. I've preached it so many times through the years as to how this works. But you got Saul over here telling him how to do it. And Saul's got empty armor in the tent. People with empty armor seem to always have the answers. <laughs> Isn't that true? Now, I'm, I'm not going to church, but I'm going to tell you what you need to. I'm not going to live for God, but you, you need to. David said... He said, sir, look, just take, just, just take this and put it on. If you're going to go, just put it on. David said, no, sir. Can't do it. He wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't rude. Whether he was right or not, Saul was still his king. And he had to learn how to, how to handle leadership in his life that wasn't living right. Please don't be distracted on me right now, folks. It's so funny. I I just finished preaching this. That when God's trying to move, distraction comes. I I want this to get down in your spirit right now. This is serious business this morning. Everybody in this room wants to be a giant slayer. But nobody wants to walk in dominion over your own flesh. But you will never hear the song sung in the land. Saul is slain his thousand, David is ten thousand. Oh, look at that. He gets to marry the king's daughter. That's all the after effect of walking in dominion over what's within him. And so God is calling us in this morning. I believe with all my heart, I sincerely believe that there are giant slayers in this room right now. I believe there are. But many of those giant slayers are shrouded in the humility of a lack of self-control. This is quiet, but it's all right. I want to take you to the words of the master himself. The greatest rabbi that's ever lived. Christ is not his last name. Christ is who he was. He was the Messiah. And Jesus Christ said this. He said, if any man is going to come after me. You all ready? Come on, preach it to me. Let him. Wait a second. I thought they were supposed to cast out devils. They are. I thought they were supposed to heal the sick. 
They are. But before the sick are healed, the dead are raised. Come on, somebody. You got to deny yourself. I wonder sometimes in the end time church what it is that God really could do through us if we would learn self-crucifixion. There's conviction in the room right now for a few. There's probably a spirit on some saying, God, hurry up, I'm hungry. But I'm asking you right now, all across this room, to search your heart. Every head's bowed and every eye's closed. If you believe that there's something greater that God wants to do in your life, but you know that if God's going to do it in you, He's going to have to fight through your flesh to do it. I want you today to take the step of faith and say, God, before I ask you for the power to slay one more giant, I'm asking you for the strength and the wisdom to control my flesh. If you're here today, this altar is open. If you're here right now and you believe that God has called you to be a part of the greatest generation that has ever been known, but you know you've been having to fight through your flesh to do the will of God, I just want you to come this morning. Come on, there's no pressure here today. There's nobody pushing you today. But you you know. You know that it's not the devil that's keeping you from doing the will of God. You know that it's not the devil that's keeping you from walking in the ministry God's called you to. It's our flesh. We can take dominion over the devil. That's all good and great. But the spirits are subject to a man that has learned to crucify his flesh. There is such a call emanating in this sanctuary this morning. To do greater things for God than we've ever done. But I wonder if it's not just self-control that could move us into the most powerful and explosive move of God that we've ever seen in our lives. Would you just reach your heart out towards heaven today? It'd be a shame to be in a meeting like this and not even be moved by the Spirit of God. It'd be a shame to hear a clarion call like we've heard today and not even be affected. I just wonder, maybe if you're not fighting that flesh right now, You can feel the Spirit of God calling you deeper. You feel that voice calling you deeper right now. But you've been measuring it. Lord, how could I ever live like that? I'd have to do this and do that and forsake this and forsake that. Listen, get control of your flesh today and let God do the measuring in your life. Come on, there's a call here this morning. There's a call here this morning.